Good morning, everyone. And as Matthew said, welcome to Christ City's first ever streaming service. The, uh, the scripture for today comes from 1 Peter 2. You can find that on your uh, order of service. Uh, I'll read from the CEB version. Peter writes, Now you are coming to him, to Jesus, as to a living stone. Even though this stone was rejected by humans, from God's perspective, it is chosen, valuable. You yourselves are being built like living stones into a spiritual temple. You are being made into a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who are God's own possession. You have become this people so that you may speak of the wonderful acts of the one who called you out of darkness into his amazing light. Once you weren't a people, but now you are God's people. Once you hadn't received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, since you are immigrants and strangers in the world, I urge that you avoid worldly desires that wage war against your lives. Live honorably among the unbelievers. Today they defame you as if you are doing evil, but in the day when God visits to judge, they will glorify him because they have observed your honorable deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I hope you're keeping well and washing your hands and being wise about what you do and don't do, caring for your loved ones and neighbors, particularly those who are more vulnerable, whether because of physical health or financial situation or social isolation. Uh, obviously, I would much rather be with you all in person, but as Matthew and I wrote uh, in the message we sent out over the weekend, it seemed like the right action and faithful action in light of what we know and what we don't know about the COVID-19 coronavirus and in consultation with health professionals in our church and with other churches in the D.C. area to cancel our in-person gatherings for now. Uh, after we came to our decision, DCPS decided to close schools for at least the rest of the month, and that, that served as a kind of confirmation to us. Now, the irony isn't lost on me that these next two weeks in the Learning to Live series we're currently in are on the church and for the sake of the world next week. Uh, there's something about the normal course of business and life being interrupted, upended in fact, to make us reconsider what we're doing and why we're doing it. What is church if we can't have Sunday gatherings together? Ten years ago, I was part of a small group of folks who planted the district church out of which Christ City Church was born. At the time, in 2010, I hadn't been consistently committed to a church community for probably about five years. Some of it was just drift. My life situation changed. I moved to a different part of town. It was less convenient to go. And, and we all know, I think, how uh, daunting it can be to find a new church home. Some of it was disillusionment, getting to see how certain decisions were made and wondering why some churches seemed like holy huddles at best and hypocritical herds at worst, rather than being hubs for imitators of Jesus to love the world the way he did. I grew up in the church. I, I don't think I ever missed a day of Sunday school. I grew up being taught that the church was the family of God, the body of Christ, the hope of the world. And, and yet as I got older and saw and experienced more of the world, I couldn't help but wonder how the church could also be the cause and carrier of so much pain and suffering and abuse, of exclusionary and unloving attitudes and postures. Some of my lack of involvement in church was discernment as well, figuring out as a 20-something at the time what I really thought about church and what place it had in my life, if any. And so I was an unlikely candidate for being part of a group that started a church. Or maybe God knew what he was doing. 
Because God often uses our wounds to bring healing. God often works through the places of disillusionment to cast a vision of hope in a different world that we're actually invited to participate in, even for our own healing. One of the first exercises we did as a group in preparing to plant was that we all took a few post-its and we wrote down what came to mind when we said church. In other words, what made church church? I want you to take a moment right now and think about three things you would write on your post-its if you had them. What makes church church for you? I'm actually giving you some time to think about it. If you have them, and if you want to, and if you're viewing it on a, uh, a thread that allows it, you can post those thoughts in, in the chat so we can share our answers. Uh, I won't be able to see them as there's a bit of a lag in streaming and the computer is on the other side of the office, uh, but let's give it a try. Uh, anyway, after we had written out our post-its, we stuck them on the wall of the living room we were gathered in and we read them out loud. Sunday services, Sunday school, Jesus, uh, reading scripture, singing songs, caring for the city. Uh, we also had kisses from grandmothers and quiche. Uh, then we asked what we could take away and still be church. And as we whittled down the post-its, removing some and, and sorting others, three core values began to emerge, umbrella categories. They were worship, community, and justice, relationship with God, with one another, and with the world. Now, those values took on different forms. They were Sunday gatherings, sure, but also worship and prayer nights and small groups and social outings and service days, starting new church plants and urban ministries. And I don't want us to think about them as siloed and separate categories. They're intertwined. They're interconnected. And in fact, they are diminished when one or other is removed. And then for us as a church now, those values have taken on slightly different vocabulary, but they're embedded actually in our name. Christ, worship, city, justice, and church, community. All three dimensions are still there. Relationship with God, relationship with each other, and relationship with the world. Now the thing about church, as with the Bible and as with prayer, as we've talked about the last few weeks, is that we all have different thoughts and experiences. Some have sparkling memories and nostalgia, but we may also have wounds at various stages of healing. Every single one of us has experienced or will experience church hurt. Whether it's because a church plant didn't take shape the way you thought it would when you first jumped on board. Or because someone uh, in the church hurt you badly and no one had your back. Or because a leader abused their position and power in some way. Or because you were told you weren't welcome to bring all of who you are. Whatever stage of the journey you were at, whatever your understanding of yourself or the world was, whatever you felt your calling was, it might have been as a woman with a, a gifting and a passion to lead in a church context. It may have been as a young queer person figuring out your identity and relationships. It may have been as a person of color or an immigrant trying to find where you belong. It may have been as someone who just loved science and thought, you know, that maybe we shouldn't leave that out of faith. May have been in, as a single person in a culture, in a church culture that often idealizes and idolizes marriage and family. Over, it must be said, our Savior who was single and celibate and still lived the fullest life anyone has ever lived. It may have been big 
or it may have been small, or you may have thought it was small at one point and then realized that the wound went way deeper. Barbara Brown Taylor in her book, Leaving Church, wrote, as a general rule, I would say that human beings never behave more badly toward one another than when they believe they are protecting God. Perhaps you've experienced that. I certainly have. I think it's important to name reality, to acknowledge truth, to recognize lived experience. Too often in the church, I think we can name only what should be and forget to name what is. We live in this time that we sometimes call the already, but not yet. Jesus has already come, but he has not yet come back. The kingdom has already broken into this world, but it has not yet been realized in its fullness. Redemption and restoration are already sweeping through, but sin and death have not yet been obliterated. And so it is with the church. You are the light of the world, said Jesus to his disciples, and yet... We encounter folks in church who seem just as hurt and broken as those who aren't there. People who use words and language in, in just the same ways as folks outside the church, except on Sundays. Individuals who are just as oblivious or manipulative or destructive in relationship as anyone who doesn't claim to know and love Jesus. Those are stories I know of people I've walked alongside. You know, there's a, well, there's a well-known saying uh, that uh, the church is not a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. And that is true, but actually being hurt by someone else's sin or by others' sin in the church is always a hard thing to experience. I've been reading this book, which was recommended by a friend. It's by uh, pastor and author Carol Howard Merritt. It's called Healing Spiritual Wounds. Here's what she says. Our souls are tender places. We hold our ideals, hopes, wishes, and dreams there. And that's why spiritual wounds can feel so devastating. In response to that inflicted pain, we can reject God. We can grow scabs in order to protect ourselves from further suffering so that our souls might not ever be susceptible to that sort of pain again. But that will inevitably harden us to the beauty, wonder, and mystery of God. There is another way, she writes. As we heal, we peel back those hardened places and allow our souls to be vulnerable again. The reason religious wounds can cut so deeply is that they carry the weight of God with them. In some way, we have felt that God was behind what wounded us. And so the first step in spiritual healing is to learn to love God by separating God from our experience of being wounded. If you're watching this and listening to this, you're probably at a place where the hurt may have healed or at least doesn't feel acute enough to keep you away. Or maybe you're one of the lucky few who hasn't experienced it yet. But maybe there's someone watching this or listening to this and you're not even sure why there's so much going on inside, so many raw emotions, so much unprocessed pain. And let me say to you, God sees you, God loves you, and God is with you. And if you've been hurt by someone who claimed to represent Jesus, then as a pastor myself and as an ordained representative of the Big C Church, let me say to you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you experienced what you did. I'm sorry that that poison was dropped into the well of what should have been living water. And I hope and pray that you find healing and you find God in a healthy community of faith surrounded by folks who are trying to love and live like Jesus did.
The passage that we read earlier comes from the first letter of Peter, who was one of Jesus' closest friends. He describes those in the church as being living stones, imitators of the living stone, Christ himself. And he talks about how we are together being made into a spiritual temple, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. In other words, we are to be a place where God dwells, representing God to humanity and interceding for humanity to God. A few verses later, Peter writes, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who are God's own possession. And if we stop there, we might get real puffed up. You have become this people so that, though, he says, so that you may speak of the wonderful acts of the one who called you out of darkness into his amazing light. Once you weren't a people, but now you are God's people. Once you hadn't received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Our purpose as the church is to testify to the one who rescued us, to the one who saved us. And in acknowledging that rescue, we're also acknowledging that we needed to be rescued. And in acknowledging that we needed to be rescued, we should be characterized by humility and grace. Humility because we couldn't rescue ourselves, so we have no place to judge others. And grace because God saved us, made us a part of his family so that we could become more and more like him, so that, you know, we could show grace to others in the same way. And then in verse 12, Peter says this, Live honorably among the unbelievers. Today they defame you as if you were doing evil, but in the day when God visits to judge, they will glorify him because they have observed your honorable deeds. Because they have observed your honorable deeds. The early Christians Peter was writing to were feeling the pressure and perhaps even being persecuted because of their faith, because they were students of Jesus' way of living. And yet Peter doesn't tell them to to fight back or to defend themselves. He says to live honorably among them in such a way that they glorify God because they have seen how you live. Honorable, good, exemplary lives. Lives that show what it looks like to love God and love neighbor and love enemy and love self. In the fourth century, the pagan Roman emperor Julian wrote how disgraceful it was that Christians didn't just take care of their own poor, but of all of the poor. Disgraceful for the cause of paganism, for they were being put to shame. So what does it mean for you? What does it mean for us to live honorably, to do good deeds, to have exemplary lives? In the 1300s, the bubonic plague swept through Europe and the Near East, a pandemic so devastating it killed between 75 and 200 million people, somewhere between 30 and 60% of Europe's population. It was known as the Black Death. Even after that initial peak, recurrences kept popping up. One historian estimates that the plague was present somewhere in Europe every year between 1346 and 1671. In the year 1527, more than 150 years after the peak wave, one of those recurrences arrived in Germany at a place called Wittenberg, home of the reformer Martin Luther and his pregnant wife, Katerina. Luther actually wrote a letter to a fellow pastor who had asked for his thoughts. The letter was entitled, Whether One May Flee from a Deadly Plague. 
And I refer to this not because the coronavirus is anywhere near that scale, but because in the face of one of the deadliest plagues in human history, Luther's words and example are insightful, encouraging, convicting, and faithful. It was a pretty thorough letter. It was a long letter. Um, I'll share a few excerpts. He had words for those who had contracted the disease and recovered. He had words for those who kept secret that they had it and were going about business as normal. He, he used examples from the Bible to talk about folks who had actually fled situations that might lead to death. He wrote about how the gospel teaches us how to live well and, if it comes to it, how to die well. How to care for those who are trying to do both, but especially how to prepare those who are about to die. He wrote about how to refrain from judging others who might respond differently, some choosing to go, some choosing to stay. In response to those who argued that medicine was of human origin and that all that one needed was faith, he said, God has created medicines and provided us with intelligence to guard and take good care of the body so that we can live in good health. So use medicines. Take potions which can help you. Fumigate house, yard, and street. Shun persons in places wherever your neighbor does not need your presence or has recovered. And act like someone who wants to help put out the burning city. And what struck me in what he said in his letter was, Whatever you do, stay or go, meet your obligations towards your neighbors. Essentially, he said that those who choose to leave in good conscience should not be judged as long as they know their neighbors are cared for. He said, no one should dare leave his neighbor unless there are others who will take care of the sick in their stead and nurse them. In such cases, we must respect the word of Christ. I was sick and you did not visit me. According to this passage, we are bound together in such a way that no one may forsake the other in his distress, but is obliged to assist and help him as he himself would like to be helped. And later in the letter he wrote, If you wish to serve Christ and to wait on him, very well, you have your sick neighbor close at hand. Go to him and serve him, and you will surely find Christ in him, not outwardly, but in his word. If you do not wish or care to serve your neighbor, you can be sure that if Christ lay there instead, you would not do so either and would let him lie there. For whoever wants to serve Christ in person would surely serve his neighbor as well. There are obvious parallels and applications to our situation today, but the heart, the calling, the core conviction hasn't changed. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Here's another way of putting it. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city into which I have carried you into exile. Pray for it, for if it prospers, you too will prosper. And that quote comes from a letter written about 2,500 years ago when the people of Israel were in an exile in a land called Babylon. They had been defeated by a foreign invader and taken into captivity, taken out of the promised land, and their holy temple was destroyed they needed a message of hope. They probably wanted a message of vengeance, a word of judgment against their oppressors and captors. Well, along comes the prophet Jeremiah, who had a word from God, but it probably wasn't what they wanted to hear. Jeremiah 29, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. 
Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. God tells them to seek the shalom, the peace, the flourishing of the city in which they find themselves in exile, because if it prospers, then they too will prosper. Now this peace is not just an absence of conflict, it's the presence of right relationship, it's the presence of holistic wholeness. It's an engagement with those from whom we would rather be divided and from whom we would rather and rather easily divide ourselves. It was this calling to seek the peace and prosperity, the shalom, the welfare, the flourishing of the city that motivated us to form a new community here in D.C., a people focused on being for a city that people usually come to take from. The vision for this church wasn't that we would just be a, a gathering of Christians who had come to D.C. to further ourselves, to get a degree or, or a job or do an internship or add to our resumes, but that we would be a family of believers, of natives and transplants who had committed to D.C., to loving and serving our neighbors and those in need. As a church, we exist for those not yet a part of our community and who may never be. We're called to love them. We're called to love everyone with the love of God. And so we will love our city. We will love our neighborhoods. We will love our neighbors in that way. Not just with words or speech, but in actions and in truth. Maybe you're still wrestling with church hurt, with folks who purportedly followed Jesus but looked and lived nothing like him. But this is what we are here, this is what we here at Christ City Church are about the story, the journey, the adventure of falling in love with Jesus, of following Jesus, of becoming like Jesus, and of inviting others along for the ride, and figuring it all out anew when life gets turned upside down. Being forced to ask hard questions about what we're doing and why we're doing it. Now, like any human institution, we aren't perfect and we don't always get it right, but, but wherever you're coming from, I believe that God has you here watching this, listening to this, because God is inviting you to participate in building a better future, in being part of a better vision, and in so doing, to see your own healing come to pass. So let me leave you with a few ideas of what we could do together as the church, the family of God seeking to resemble our heavenly parent, the body of Christ seeking to follow the lead of our head. First, follow public health advice. Our spiritual lives and our physical lives and our social lives, they're not separate. And if uh, Martin Luther can tell his readers to fumigate, then it's no less holy for me to tell you to wash your hands, just wipe down surfaces, self-quarantine if you're sick, because in doing so, you are loving your neighbor. Second, I want to invite you to give. Giving tithes and offerings isn't as much a part of our cultural practice nowadays, but and, and, and some of that is, is with so many still recovering from church hurt or maybe wanting to spend or give their money in other ways, and I get that. But when you give to, to Christ City at, at this current time, you're supporting the church as we care for folks, as we work with other local organizations to coordinate care, and as we seek to provide support in holistic way, heart, mind, body, soul. It also goes to existing partnerships with minor elementary and organizations working to see more of God's good kingdom here on earth, both around the country and in places like Thailand and Latin America. 
It goes to subsidizing childcare for, for small groups so that families don't uh, feel isolated and, and helping to fund small group retreats so that cost is not a barrier to anyone who wants to enter into community. It goes to resources and trainings on uh, the spiritual history of DC, for example. It goes to helping folks find a therapist. It goes to a benevolence fund for emergency requests for funerals and unexpected costs. It goes to DCPS when we rent minor on Sunday mornings or, or our office space, which allows us to provide a location where we can have a physical presence in the city God has called us to. Now, this is not a guilt trip. It's a reminder that those of us who have margin and privilege have it so that we can care for those who have less than we do. Third, you can serve. As Matthew mentioned, there are tremendous areas of need in the city, uh, particularly for parents who will have to care for kids who are unexpectedly at home, uh, for workers whose jobs are suddenly at risk, kids and families who counted on school to provide a regular lunch, which uh, DCPS is continuing to host at, at certain schools around the city. The latest studies suggest that uh, even if you're not showing symptoms, you may have it, so we want to be careful with that. But as Matthew said, if you're available to help in any way, running errands, picking up meds or groceries, you can email us at info at ChristCityDC.org. And if you or someone you know or some organization you know could use some help in any way, email us at info ChristCityDC.org. And then fourth, we can pray. We pray for those who are sick or who have lost loved ones. And pray for those whose livelihoods and paychecks are at risk, those who are serving on the front lines in hospitals and medical centers, those who are experiencing racism and xenophobia because of this. You know, it's, it's always the most vulnerable who are most deeply affected by any crisis, those with the least margin, those who can least afford uh, to experience something like this, whether it's because of physical situation or financial or social. And so we want to pray for them. We want to lift them up to the Lord. These opportunities, these four opportunities are not mutually exclusive. They are worship, community, and justice intertwined. They are Christ, city, church woven together. We get to do them all and see the church truly become like living stones made into a spiritual temple, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people called to seek the shalom, the welfare, the prosperity of the city. God has placed us in a time and place and a context we might rather not be so that we might bless those around us with the blessing of God. And in that, we might find our own blessing. I want to close with the words of the Spanish mystic, St. Teresa of Avila. She wrote, Christ has no body now but yours, no hands but yours, no feet but yours. Yours are the eyes through which Christ's compassion must look out on the world. Yours are the feet with which he is to go about doing good. Yours are the hands with which he is to bless us now. And so, in the words of Martin Luther, as he closed out his letter, May Christ, our Lord and Savior, preserve us all in pure faith and fervent love, unspotted and pure, until his day. Amen.